All right, let's start with prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather freely in the name of your son, Jesus, the name above all names. Lord, our devotion uh, is first and foremost to him and uh, not just to uh, learning uh, intellectual knowledge, but to become better formed into the image of your son and to live our lives uh, far more in alignment with him uh, than we currently are, Lord. We are grateful for your patience with us, but we also uh, heed your call to transformation, to uh, walk like Jesus walked and to live like Jesus lived. So, Lord, I pray that if this class does anything today, it would give us great encouragement uh, in understanding of how to better do that so that the world might be touched with the gospel of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, very good. I uh, am so glad that um, some more of you were able to make it this week. I realized I, uh, I, I needed to be a little bit more clear on the communication about the class, and I, I think I thought I sent an email that I didn't send, <laughs> which is uh, what happens sometimes. So, so glad that you're here this morning. Last week, we uh, talked very, uh, just give you a brief overview, we talked about the necessity of having a twofold equipping and we looked at Luke 24 where Jesus took his disciples after he'd raised from the dead and he began to open the scriptures to them and show them that all of it was about him and how he fulfilled everything. But then he said, you are going to be my witnesses, but first uh, go into the city and wait because you're going to receive the gift that my father promised, which was that they would be clothed with the power of the spirit. And so we looked at the necessity of needing to be people who are both students of scriptures so that we can bring others into that story and know how to share that story of scripture with them and how it all points to Jesus, but that we will also be clothed with the power of the spirit because we'll be imbalanced if we only have one but not the other. If we have the spirit without the word, we get off track theologically and in our beliefs. But if we have the, the Bible and a lots of intellectual knowledge but no spiritual power, we become uh, focused on our own intellect and ability to bring people uh, to Jesus with our own power and our own intellect, which is not a, not a good recipe for success. So that's what we talked about last week, the balance there. And this week, we're gonna, I want to give a little bit of, uh, this is probably the last week of more foundational teaching that undergirds what is going to be more practical uh, teaching on operating in the gifts of the Spirit and healing prayer and things like that. But I think it's really important to have a framework to understand why all that stuff is important. And so that's where we're going to kind of go start today by talking about uh, the kingdom, because this was central to Jesus' teaching. So we start our liturgy uh, for communion uh, every week, and we say, Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, what do we say after that? What's the response? Come on, Anglicans. What's the response? <laughs> and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. So we invoke uh, the Holy Trinity, the name of the Holy Trinity, when we begin and we say, blessed be God's kingdom. And so at the very beginning of our worship, we acknowledge that we are participants in a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that's not of this world, but that has effect on this world. Let's look uh, this morning at Mark chapter 1. We've been preaching through Mark, so you might remember this from probably a couple of months ago when we were at the very beginning of the gospel. And uh, I always do the scripture readings for the class so that that way the microphone picks me up for those audio listeners. That's why I don't uh, ask for volunteers to do the readings in the class. Okay, Mark chapter 1, 
Jesus has just been baptized and the Spirit has come to rest on him, which is something we'll talk about uh, a little bit in the future. But it says this starting in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That word is gospel, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus' message, it wasn't, uh, uh, the good news is that you can go to a place called heaven when you die. He, now that's a part of things, right? But his message was first and foremost that there was this kingdom that had now arrived. Okay. So we want to talk a little bit about the nature of that kingdom and what it is because it has everything to do with how we minister in the Spirit's power. The kingdom of God, we could say this, is God's rule over people's hearts and minds, but eventually his rule over the entire creation. So it's a rule that has begun in a new way in and through the person of Jesus. Jesus is, a, is the, the herald of and the advancer of God's kingdom reign in the earth. And we come to find out that he himself is king. Okay? So that's what the kingdom of God is. So think about it a little bit more as an unseen reality God's reign is exercise of his dominion over people's hearts and minds, which we know is a problem because, uh, because of the fall, God's, uh, people's minds and hearts are not submitted to God's reign, right? It's submitted to self because of the fall and because of sin. Now, here's a connection to ministering in the power of the Spirit to the kingdom, okay? And this is from John Wimber, a saint of old. He, he passed away in the 90s but, or early 2000s, but he said this, for the duration of his public ministry, Jesus demonstrated that the kingdom of God was near. Okay, so he didn't just talk about it, he demonstrated it. Well, how did he do that? He demonstrated the kingdom by healing the sick, casting out demons, and raising the dead. Every miraculous act had a purpose, and it was to confront people with the message of the kingdom, that the kingdom had come and that they have to make a decision whether they're going to accept it or reject it. So Jesus says, look, God is here to turn people back to his rule and his ways so that they might be reunited with him. And you have to do that by turning from your sin and turning towards him. But Jesus further demonstrated what that, the nature of that kingdom was like. And what did he do? He healed sick people and cast out evil spirits. He raised the dead. He showed that the nature of this kingdom was to make people whole. To save people from sin, from sickness, from death even. And so that's why these things that we talk about, the spiritual gifts or the supernatural power of God that does miracles, those are manifestations of God's spirit that are demonstrating his rule. When a sick person gets healed because we've prayed for them in Jesus' name, God exercised his dominion over sickness and showed that he cares about a person so much that he will exercise his authority to cast sickness out of someone's body. Okay? And it's the same with an evil spirit being cast out of someone. God has exercised his authority and his reign over the spirits of darkness. And so that person could find freedom and uh, wholeness. Any questions yet at this point about the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom and its demonstration? Yes. Yes, so in the Old Testament, the question was, is there anyone in the Old Testament that we know that healed anybody? And the answer is yes. God endowed certain, usually though, it was 
a special appointed people like prophets like Elijah or Elisha and God in, endowed them with a power for a particular situation. We'll talk about the difference of that in what we have now in the new covenant with Jesus, which is an unlimited measure of the spirit now living in us so that we can walk in that kind of power all the time and not just on certain occasions. But we'll get a little bit deeper into that um, in a little bit here. Good, great question. We could say the power was there in the Old Testament for the people of God, but in the New Testament, it's, uh, it was uh, you know, a, a, an occasional rain shower on them as, of his power. In the New Testament, the dams have broke and the floods have burst out, the, the floods of the power of the Holy Spirit in an unlimited measure. And we're going to speak more on that in just a minute. Now go a few verses forward. Let's look at a demonstration of this uh, power that Jesus talks about. In verse... Uh, Starting in verse 21, we see this story, and Jesus goes right in his public ministry, and he goes into the synagogue, which was normal for the rabbis and the men to stand up and to expound on the scriptures. And it says this, he went to Capernaum, or they went with the disciples, he went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So that was customary. But here's the, here's the unique thing. It says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. What do kings have? Authority. Okay? This is unique authority. Not He taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And be quiet, said Jesus sternly. It's more like, shut up. <laughs> That's what it would be in like our modern English. And he says, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And it says this, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And then news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So what we saw there was a demonstration now that God is starting to take back territory that belongs to him, namely the hearts and minds and even the bodies of people who have been tormented and afflicted by sin and sickness and demons, and Jesus has demonstrated that uh, in real time. Okay? So that's a demonstration of the spiritual power that comes with the coming kingdom. Okay? 1 John chapter 3, later in the New Testament, tells us this. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the man, the demon and the man who asked the question, have you come to destroy us? There's your answer for him. Indeed, that is why I came, <laughs> Jesus could have said. He did indeed come to destroy the works of the devil. And so what you see with the kingdom of God is it begins, it's coming against what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness. Because the kingdom of darkness has temporary influence and power in the world. But the kingdom of God now in the person of Jesus and, and in and through his church is pushing back that kingdom of darkness as it advances through the proclamation of the gospel accompanied by things like evil spirits getting cast out or sickness being healed, people being raised from the dead. So here's what I want us to just remember and, and be reminded of often is that we're, we're engaged in a battle Right? It's, not a, it's not a game like chess where we can kind of you know, take our turn whenever we kind of feel like it's time for us to go. We're actively engaged in battle, whether we realize it or not, whether we want to be or not. We're in a battle, 
And I was reminded of this, that everyone is both armored and armed in the spirit realm. Every Christian is armored and armed. And I was reminded of a beautiful picture like this. I'm, how many of you have watched through the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings movies? How many of you have watched those? Oh, if you have not seen them, you must go on Amazon and watch them. They're incredible. But uh, so fantasy tale written by Catholic J.R.R. Tolkien back in the early 20th century. But there's a scene where they're preparing the, uh, the so the, the orcs are the evil kind of representation of evil and darkness. They're the army of the orcs, the Yurukai, and they're coming and they're going to, they want to destroy men and take over and spread darkness throughout Middle Earth. And so the men of these, uh, these towns, Rohan and Gondor, are kind of trying to figure out their differences so that they can ally in war against the coming armies of orcs at a place called Helm's Deep. And they are looking at each other and basically saying, this is, we're going to be overpowered. And so they begin to give armor and arms and swords, chainmail armor and swords, even to young boys, because everybody needs to fight if they're going to have any chance. Now, the great thing is, is that they hear this horn blow, and all of a sudden, this army of elves show up to reaffirm their alliance with humans to fight against the evil hordes of orcs, okay? And we have backup from heaven, angels and archangels, amen? And so it's such a beautiful picture of that. But everyone, just like at the Battle of Helm's Deep, everyone has to realize we all need to be in this battle. Okay? We need to be actively thinking about how God wants to use and advance his kingdom through all of us, not just through leaders who wear collars or, or whatever. We're all in, engaged in this battle. Okay? Now, here's what I want to talk about next, about the, the nature of God's kingdom. And I think this is just a really helpful uh, understanding this has helped me a lot in understanding the nature of the kingdom so the kingdom of god we can say that it is already here but it's also not yet so we say it's already not yet so everybody say that with me already not yet okay and what i mean by that is that the kingdom has come and it is already here in some manifestations but it's not yet here in all of its fullness it will be when Jesus returns, when the king returns to earth for the second time. It will be here in all of its fullness, and evil will be completely overthrown. There will be a final judgment, and God will make all things new. But it's, even though it's not yet here like that, it is here already. Okay? And I have a, a picture that I'm going to show you in a minute that's going to help bring clarity to this idea. It's already here because it's been inaugurated in and through Jesus when he walked the earth. With the king from heaven came the kingdom in its reign, okay? And it gets advanced through his church, and we're going to get to that in just a minute, how that works. But it's also not yet because the fullness is yet to come. So we're in this, we're living right now in history, in this epic of time before the end of time, where there's this tension between this already aspect of the kingdom and the not yet aspect of the kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's a picture that is helpful uh, this is kind of a timeline, and let me tell you what these represent. My laser pointer doesn't um, show up on these uh, screens, but this bottom line right here represents the present age that we live in, and that's an age of exile, oppression, the reign of sin and death, and we could add sickness in there too. And that's this line right here, and that's the line, and we could just say, of time, the kind of time-bound line that's eventually going to stop, right? Time, history is going to come to an end, but this is where we live right now. When Jesus came into time from his eternal realm, he brought the kingdom with him, right? Through his life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he brought the kingdom with him, okay? Now, he, he's going to return this top line here. 
I'm not tall enough to reach it. This top line here is the coming age, which is kind of the, light, the eternal life age, right? The age of heaven, which is going to last forever. And those things in this box here, you see how it says already slash not yet kingdom? That's where we are right now. So there's this over, we're living in an overlap of ages right now. We are living in the present time of history. But that present time of history is overlapping right now with heaven's realm. Okay? And it's, it's invaded that, it's, you know, so the top line has invaded the bottom line, and that's what we call the kingdom. Okay? I know that's clear as mud, right? But there's an aspect, there's a, there is a manifestation of the kingdom right now that we have access to here in time because the presence of heaven is overlapping with earth because of Jesus' incarnation and his, his sacrifice on the cross and all that and, he, and his giving us of the spirit. So I, I find that helpful. It, might, it, may, it may seem confusing. Maybe you want to take a picture of it and meditate on it later. But Jesus will return and the kingdom will be consummated. And then this line is no more. No longer do men have the option to turn to God and repent and, and be saved. And we just move into the eternal age, which will encompass the earth and renew all things. And there will be no end. And God will relieve all suffering. Uh, Jesus will reward his people with, uh, with their, their heavenly rewards. And we will live with him in the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth forever. Hallelujah. That's the good news of the Bible. That's where we're headed. But right now, we're still living in this already not yet tension. And that's why we see that sometimes when we pray for a sick person, they stay sick. Because there's this tension of the agony of defeat and the, the thrill of victory. Okay? And sometimes we see, we see defeat and sometimes we see victory. But in a battle, you keep pressing on. Okay? Because we're, we're constantly fighting these kind of mini battles in this great war between heaven and earth. And every time you engage with somebody, say an unbeliever and you simply have an opportunity to say a prayer for them or share a little bit about Jesus with them, you're engaged in advancing God's kingdom against the forces of the enemy. So it, it's not just the way of advancing the kingdom is not just uh, a, a, amazing miracles of healing the sick and casting out demons. That's a part of it. But it's also a humble and quiet serving my neighbor and then just sharing, I do this because Jesus loves you and he would want me to serve you and he served you by dying for your sins on the cross. Those ways that seem little to us are amazing ways of advancing the kingdom because you're helping people's hearts soften and open up to the reign of God in their lives, okay? So don't, don't, don't ever think, oh, these little acts of kindness or prayer or sharing Jesus with people are not really that big of a deal because they are, okay? Along with the signs and wonders of healing and casting out demons. Any questions about that picture um, that you would want clarity on or any, any questions that pop up in your head about that. Okay. Oop, I think I hit the wrong, wrong button. Let me, let me fast forward us here. My computer's kind of far away, so it takes a minute to... Okay. Here we go. Now... Pentecost. We're going to jump right to Pentecost because at Pentecost, the church was birthed, the Christian church, the idea of the church of a group of people called out to, to, to belong to God through Jesus Christ was given birth to extend God's kingdom reign. That's what you were born to do, or I should say that's what you were born again to do. 
You were born again through Jesus to be a part of the extension of God's kingdom reign. And how did that happen? What did it look like? It looked like Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, they're waiting and they're praying in response to Jesus' command, go wait until you're clothed with power. And there's 120 followers of Jesus gathered in a room and they're praying and praying and waiting. And suddenly they start hearing something like a violent wind in the room. And what appears to be tongues of fire descend upon them and they begin to proclaim the wondrous deeds of God. And the peoples gathered in the city begin to gather around them to see this spectacle of these people who, who are even so filled with joy and exuberance that they're accused of being drunk. And that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. He was bringing great joy into God's people, but he was also empowering them to boldly speak of God in the gospel and the wonders that God had done in the Messiah in his death on the cross. And, you know, you, you all know this, but the church is a people, not a building, right? The church is you and me, not these walls and these lights and these screens. The church is a people. And the church, we could say, is the primary residence of God's reign. God's address on earth is you and you and you and you and me. That's God's residence on earth. Because what happened at Pentecost is that the Spirit was poured out in abundance into every Christian believer. Okay? So thus the church witnesses to the reality of the kingdom that's advancing by exercising Jesus' power and authority. When the Spirit of Jesus lives in you, coming with the spirit of the king living in you is the king's power and authority. Okay? Christians have so much power and authority that we don't realize because we're afraid of being uh, disrespectful to God or sacrilegious, but what ends up happening is we, we end up disobeying God by not walking in that power and authority. Okay? And we want to take hold of it, not with pride, like, I'm so powerful, but Jesus Christ in me. We're going to sing that song, I speak Jesus. <laughs> I speak Jesus to this sickness, to this demon. I speak Jesus to leave now. The power and authority of Jesus is in every Christian believer. It's that picture of the chainmail armor and the sword. You are equipped to do battle with the unseen kingdom and powers of darkness. That's why we, when we pray for people, uh, for example, to be healed of sickness, we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come and approach something or someone in someone else's name in the biblical times was to like carry that person's authority. So if somebody came to you in biblical times and said, I come in the name of Caesar Augustus bearing this message for you, uh, and this is going to happen now by decree, that's what we're doing when we say in the name of Jesus Christ. So have you ever wondered why do we pray in the name, why do we say in the name of Jesus? Well, we're carrying, it's a way of saying I'm praying in and through my union with the king. And I'm carrying his power and authority to be able to uh, ask for this thing or to speak this thing uh, or to, to bring about this uh, thing that needs to happen to bring wholeness into the world or into a person's life. Any questions or thoughts on any of that before we jump to the next, next thing? John, yes. Yes. And people who actually have Jesus in their lives. Yes. Who are, who are actually believing in that man. 
Yes, yes, exactly. That's a great clarification that the church is not just uh, people in general, but people who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for the new life that only he can, he can offer. And um, that, that's where the authority comes because when you put your faith in Jesus, the spirit of God comes to live in you, right? It begins to change things, but it's not just people in general. A person has to repent, as Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, right? Believe that he is the messenger of God who came to pay for your sin and to bring you new life, okay? So, you know, people, this, this kind of reminds me of a hang-up that some people get on, and um, people will say something like, um, you know, talking about everybody in the world, they'll say, we're all just God's children. Well, yes and no, <laughs> because the Bible, you know, there is a general sense in which by virtue of being a human being made in the image of God, God, you, you are a child of God in a sense, but that's not really how the Bible describes child of God. The biblical language describing child of God is actually somebody who's been adopted into his family because they've chosen to turn from sin and the devil over to Jesus and to believe in him. And, and the Bible refers to that often as an adoption process. So that's when you become a son or daughter of God. So I'm always a little careful when someone says, we're all just children of God. It's like, well, the Bible says it a little bit different than that. And people are afraid of being offensive, but we want people to, you know, we don't want to say, well, you're not, you're, you're out and I'm in, but we do want them to feel God's invitation to them to join his family. But, you know, if there's no, if there's no need to do that, then, then uh, Jesus died for no reason, right? If everybody's already a child of God, Jesus came for, Jesus didn't need to come. Jesus needed to come because people have been separated from God. They, have, they are out of his family, and, G, and he wants to bring them in. Okay, so great, great clarification, John. Yes, yes, John chapter 1 is a great place to read about that. Yes. Okay. So Jesus told his disciples, he used this terminology himself, you'd be clothed with power. He said, you will be clothed with power from on high, meaning from God's realm, from heaven. You're going to be clothed with power, okay? And so I, just because my mind is so in the Lord of the Rings right now, here's another great scene from Lord of the Rings. So Gandalf, if you know the story, he's at first, he's the gray wizard, and he's kind of, the, he's a good guy. He's in some senses a, a figure of Jesus in the, in the, in the fantasy myth, mythology. But he... They believe that uh, Gandalf uh, died because he was fighting this big demonic creature and he fell off of a thing and they believe that he died. I'm going to spoil the movie for you a little bit. But um, he ends up coming back because he went, kind of went into this underworld. So it's kind of a picture of almost Jesus' death and you know, ascent into the underworld and then resurrection. But he comes back and he's the white wizard <laughs> and he's glowing with radiance. And so there's this scene where they bring him in and there's this king who's under the spell of the, the evil wizard. And Gandalf comes in, and he has his gray cloak on. And they, they let him come in to see the king, and he begins to talk to him, and he begins to address the evil wizard spirit who has this king held captive. And he says, you will no longer be held under the spell of Saruman. And then the, the spirit speaks back to him through the king, and he says, you have no power here, Gandalf the gray. And then all of a sudden, you see a camera shot from behind, and he, uh, he disrobes his gray robe, and he's in all white, and he's glowing, and he puts his staff forward, and, uh, and he basically does an exorcism of the evil spirit. It's this beautiful picture. It's this beautiful picture of being clothed with the power of God. See, now you have to go and watch the movies. That part's in the second movie, The Two Towers. Um, but it's amazing. And he, 
He sends this evil spirit of this wizard out of this king, and this king comes back to life, and his color comes back in his face, and he's in his right mind. And it's this beautiful picture of like deliverance, but of being clothed with God's power. In the spiritual realm, that is how a demonic spirit sees you if you are in Christ. Okay? And that's why they hide and they don't want to be exposed when they're tormenting people, because when they see you, uh, they see power and radiance and the splendor of Jesus in you, even though you don't see it with your eyes. John, Father John has a story in his book, God's Refugee, about the Christian ministers coming to uh, a man who was very possessed by, you know, they worshiped the Jacques, the ancestral spirits, but those were just demonic spirits, and there was a man very tormented by them, and when the Christians came with their Bible and everything, he said, no, 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 make them go, take it away, it's glowing, it's too light, you know, because the spirit, in the spirit realm, they can see the radiance and splendor of Jesus and the gospel all over Christians. They're like, we hate that smell, we hate that light, and, but you have that light, you're clothed with that power. So that was my rabbit trail, but I haven't got into the slide yet. Let's see here. Okay, let's look at Acts chapter 1. Amazing stories in that book. If you haven't picked it up yet from Amazon, it's $10, uh, God's Refugee. And we're excited, John, to hear from you later in the service today. Okay. Here we go, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion... While Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is before Pentecost. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That word baptized means immersed. He says John was doing a baptism of repentance. Soon you're going to experience a baptism in the Spirit of God. And then we read in a few verses later in chapter 2 about Pentecost, which we just talked about. And we see audio phenomenon, we see wind, we see visual phenomenon, tongues of fire coming down. We see gifts from the Holy Spirit, which enable them to speak in the tongues of other people that they didn't know. And we see power, which is manifest in their drunken behavior because they're accused of being drunk because they're so exuberant and happy with the joy of the Lord, with the Spirit coming on them. That's why sometimes if people, somebody gets very filled with the Holy Spirit, they can get a little giggly sometimes and, I know some of you know that and have experienced that. It's the joy of the Lord. Okay, now, so Pentecost happens, and we're not going to read through that part of the account because we just described it, but let's look at a little deeper in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. So Peter, who is now all of a sudden the, the infamous betrayer of Jesus, who Jesus has now restored and forgiven, is now full of the Holy Spirit. And instead of running away from the opportunity to share and witness for Jesus, he runs head on to the crowds and begins to preach boldly because the Spirit makes all the difference in our boldness. And he says, Peter stood up with the eleven. So you've got these crowds around, thousands of people. Some um, historians say that up to a million people could have been visiting Jerusalem for this, um, this, this feast, Shavuot. Okay, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd, and he said, fellow Jews, okay, these are people who know their Old Testament, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, okay? He says it's not happy hour yet. Nobody's drunk. No, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and then he points them back to their scriptures, and this is what Joel said in the Old Testament. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And it goes on for some time to describe some other things. So he's interpreting the phenomenon, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. He's giving them a theological interpretation of how to understand what's happening. And he's telling them this is the fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years ago. This is the promise of the Father that he would pour his spirit out on human flesh and put it in people's hearts and clothe them with power. And people are going to begin to have dreams and visions. They're going to prophesy. There's going to be signs and wonders. Those, all those supernatural ministries that we're going to talk about in this class are evidence that we're living in what Peter calls the last days where the Spirit has been poured out. God's Spirit now that rested on Jesus has been democratized to all of God's people. He's been poured out abundantly on all of God's people. And so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the sign that this new age, what Peter calls the last days, has now dawned. We're living in the last days of history, okay? And that could be 5,000 years. We don't know God's timeline. It could be, you know, it could be, this year could be the last age of history. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but we do know that this, God sees this as the last period of human history. And so he has poured out his spirit on the church so that the kingdom of God can go forth in power and that many more can be saved and turn their lives to Jesus before the end, before the, the door of the kingdom is, is shut. Okay. So all of these things show, these supernatural signs, when we have testimonies in church of someone who said, such and such prayed for me last week and my sciatica is healed, which we had that testimony a few weeks ago, that's a sign of the kingdom being already here. God exercised his reign through the prayers of his saints over that person's body to bring wholeness to them. And now their sciatica is gone. So we celebrate those things because they're signs of the advance of God's kingdom and the reign of Jesus on the earth. Amen? I'm getting preaching now. Okay. I've got to save my preaching energy for later. <laughs> okay. Here's the results of the empowering of the Spirit in the Bible. Just a few examples. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day, there were added that day about 3,000 souls, that is, to, to the church, to the people of God. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is powerful preaching in the Spirit's power. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There's very much a link between being full of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and speaking God's word with boldness to people. Big link there. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So a big part of that, the, the believing of people who didn't know Jesus, a big part of that was that they were seeing the signs and wonders regularly done. Okay? And there are, there are many... Uh, places throughout the world right now where believers are coming to Jesus through seeing signs and wonders. We were, I was talking with Father John this morning over the breakfast table about in, in South Sudan when he was ministering in some of the camps uh, that so many people would come to the Christians 
if they were tormented by the evil spirits. And they would say, would you come and bring your cross and do the prayers? And they would go with their crucifix and do the prayers and the torment would leave because the demons would be cast out of the, of the person or their house or whatever. And people, John saw people uh, healed often miraculously by Jesus. And then people would come and gather on the Christians and they would t- tell them how to be baptized and put their faith in Jesus. And so that stuff is still happening today. Okay? We may not see it in so much, so much, so uh, often in the Western world, but that's not because God's not doing it. It's a it large part has to do with our faith and our level of expectation and our boldness and things like that, right? Which is why we want to do equipping classes to say, look, God's calling us. He's calling us up and deeper in, further into these things, so that we can minister in His power and see the kingdom uh, advance. Hallelujah. Okay, this is the last thing I'm going to talk about today, and I just want to give you a glimpse of some of the early centuries of the church, what we, some of the extant literature that we have that talks about this, but in the early centuries of the church, now if you shift, you kind of fast forward a little bit, a generation or two past the book of Acts, and you will see that water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit, or what we might call being filled with the Holy Spirit, were very closely related. And they're, um, they're related in Scripture, too. Um, that, that's, a, that's probably a, cl- a whole class in of itself for another time of trying to uh, sort through the difference between baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. But we know that at water baptism, we're given the Holy Spirit. And by faith in Jesus and baptism, and it's kind of, you can't pull all those things apart. They're all kind of part of a package. We are given the Spirit of God. But there's also a kind of an immersion in the spirit or a filling with the spirit that we need to happen, that needs to happen for every Christian to be clothed with this power so that it's not just in them, but flowing out of them. As uh, one pastor says, the Holy Spirit is a river, not a lake. But for some Christians, they've only so far experienced him as a lake, kind of sitting, you know, sitting there. And God, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, wants to release it as as an outflow of water that brings life to the world and to other people in Jesus' name. But in the early centuries of the church, what was uh, the practice was, is that after coming up out of the baptismal waters, okay, so first when you were a sort of a candidate for baptism, they would call those uh, catechumens, they were the new believers who were going through process of being taught the scriptures and the faith, then they would come to baptism, which was usually done at, at Easter services in, on Moss, they had big massive baptisms, but you would come up out of the baptismal waters and the bishop, the overseer, the episcopoi, they would, uh, the candidate would be anointed with oil for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we do baptisms on November 20th in a pool, you will see that we anoint the children or adults, whoever's baptized, at, when they come out of the water with a little bit of oil on their head. And we say, you are marked as Christ's own forever. And that oil symbolizes the spirit, the anointing of the spirit. And so the candidate would come out of the baptism waters and be anointed with oil for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then they would be prepared to participate in the Eucharist, right? And baptism uh, comes first. Baptism is marriage, and Eucharist is consummation, intimacy, right? That's why we, in the Anglican tradition, and for 2,000 years of church history, we don't serve communion until people are baptized, because baptism is kind of a component of their putting their faith in Jesus, and once they've done that, we see that as a, a marriage between the person and the Lord, and now they're ready to come into the intimacy of receiving the body and blood of the Lord. So that's why we say, and, and there's traditions who disagree and would make theological arguments to say people can have uh, a communion as long as they have faith, and th- that's fine. We can disagree about that. It's not a, not a central thing. I think it's important, but we, in the Anglican tradition, we say that's kind of like sex before marriage, 
And so that's why we, why we wait until baptism so that that person has been obedient to Jesus to be baptized, and then they come forward for, for communion. So when we do communion, that's why we say to believers, hey, if you're not yet baptized but you're following Jesus, we want to help you get baptized, but come forward anyway with everybody else and just put your arms like this over your chest, and we just pray a word of blessing over you because we, we want you to feel like you're a part of God's church, but we feel like this other, this other step that God requires of us is what we want to do next, and then we bring you in we bring you to the, the wedding feast where we consummate the marriage with Eucharist. And that's how it's been since the days um, of the, the earliest days of the church. But here's what they did. When the candidate came up out of the waters, the presbyter, whoever was leading, or bishop or whoever was doing the baptisms, would call down the Holy Spirit upon the newly baptized for an infilling and for a release of the charisms. Now we're going to talk about what charisms means more specifically next Sunday, but they would ask for God to pour out now his gifts on that person coming out of the baptismal waters. So when we do baptisms of uh, adults, we should have expectations that the Holy Spirit is going to come in power on that person. Now we're going to pray for that. So I always pray for that. When I baptize an, an adult, I pray for that, that the Holy Spirit would come and release spiritual gifts in his power and clothe them with power. Okay. Okay. And often people will talk about feeling kind of something come over them, like electricity or heat or a wave of peace. They'll feel God's presence come kind of down on them, okay? Now, here's just a couple of interesting little things from ancient Christian literature. This is St. Cyprian of Carthage, who lived in the 3rd century. And he said this, I went down into those life-giving waters and all the stains of my past were washed away. I love that. It's so good. I committed my life to the Lord. He cleansed my heart and filled me with the Holy Spirit. I was born again, a new man. So see, they, they in the early church would have not separated baptism in water and being born again, okay? Because it's a picture of a new birth. I committed my life to the Lord. He cleansed my heart and filled me with the Holy Spirit. I was born again, a new man. Then in a most marvelous way, all my doubts cleared up. So there was this new clarity. I could now see what had been hidden from me before. Then he says this, I found I could do things that had previously been impossible. God pours out his spirit without measure. By that grace, now listen, we are given power in all purity to heal the sick, whether of body or mind. So they believed in inner healing in the ancient church of healing people's minds and their hearts. To reconcile enemies. I think that's a really interesting part of what they believed was part of the power of the spirit was that enemies could be reconciled and that violence could be quelled. To quell violence, to calm passions, to reprimand demons and force them to disclose their identity. I love this. Punishing them with sharp blows until, with loud shrieks and struggles, they flee in terror. And he's describing, in the name of Jesus Christ, you will come off of her. You will come out of him. That's what he's describing. And, and demons are fleeing out of people. So this, this stuff was happening in the first century in the Bible. It was happening in the second century. On into the third century, we know what we know. They were baptizing people. Those people were getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and they had a new kind of power to exercise demons, to heal the sick, to help enemies be reconciled. Supernatural power. Isn't that awesome? I just love that, that we have this still in existence today, these writings that show us what was happening in the early days of the church. Now, this is a little bit even earlier. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon... Uh, who's, a, who's a saint, in the, in the, considered a saint by the church, and he was around somewhere around early 2nd century to late 2nd century, so maybe 115 to 202. And he says this, he was a Christian leader in the church, 
and he says, those who are, I think he was a bishop, I can't remember right now, but he says, those who are truly the Lord's disciples perform miracles in his name for the well-being of others. So remember, we talked about being clothed with the Spirit's power is to bring wholeness into people's lives. They perform miracles in, the name for, in his name for the well-being of others according to the gift that each one has received from him. So they believed baptism, anointing with oil, praying for the Holy Spirit to come. They believed that every Christian believer had received specific gifts from him, the Lord, spiritual gifts, which is next week's, what we're going to dive into next Sunday. He says, for some truly drive out devils so that those who have been cleansed from evil spirits frequently believe and join the church. So people get demons cast out of them and then they invite them to put their faith in Jesus and they become a part of the church. Others have foreknowledge of things to come. Okay? They have prophetic power to see things to come. They see visions and utter prophecies. Still others heal the sick by laying their hands on them and they are made whole. We've seen that in the last few weeks in our church, folks. Amazing. Yes, moreover, the dead have even been raised up and remained among us for many years. People died, and Christians prayed over them, and they got up, and they hung out for a few more years. <laughs> That's what he's saying, right? Because even when we raise someone from the dead, they're eventually going to die, right? And Jesus is going to raise them forever. But, so this was the kind of stuff that was the norm in early Christianity. And it's the norm in Christianity in many parts of the world today. And in, and in the West, I have a passion to teach on this stuff and to try to just get us thinking about it because that's the beginning of starting to step into it is to begin to think about it, begin to believe that this is what God has for me. This is the inheritance he has for me to walk in. When, when the spirit realm sees me, they see Jesus glowing radiantly in me with his power. Now, how are we going to release that power to others but by growing in our faith and in our trust and exercising it and taking risks in believing uh, that God wants to show up in his, with his presence and power and work through us. And the sermon's a little bit about that somewhat um, today, kind of getting over fear so that God can use us more greatly. We'll get, get into that in the sermon. Okay, we're going to wait. We're gonna, next week, we're going to jump into this, so I'm going to end there, and we need to get started to set up for communion. Any final questions before we um, close the class for the day? Any points that need uh, clarification? Are you fired up? Are you fired up for Jesus? So fired. <laughs> Amen. Good. Okay. Well, class dismissed, and uh, talk amongst yourselves. We're going to finish setting up in here and get ready. We've got communion today. We've got our special guest, Father John. If you get a chance, say hi to him before the service, after the service, and get to know him, and you'll enjoy uh, talking with him. God bless you all. <laughs>